Well, I hope you've made your way to Luke chapter 20 this morning. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter together, and so I'm going to read it, move our way through 47 verses, and then, and then we're going to try to tackle this chapter uh, today. I think what you're going to discover as I read this text is that there are some interesting things in this chapter. Like, I imagine that as I read these verses, some of you are going to about be like, wow, he's on verse 46, 40, you're, you're, you're about ready to land the plane, and then all of a sudden, an interesting verse is going to wake you up. Because this chapter has some intriguing things. Follow along, please, as I read from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 47. When I finish the chapter, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Luke 20, beginning in verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? And if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the, par the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's, he said to them. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a, a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is he his son? In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They shall receive greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, this morning we ask that you would clear away any of the clutter that seems to drip into our hearts on mornings like this. When seasons change and Life rhythms change and students go back to school and fall begins and all these different patterns of our lives pick up. We can get distracted. But today, right here, would you just open our eyes so that we could behold wondrous things out of your law? Would you clear other things away? Help us to be like sheep who hear the good shepherd's voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine this morning a prestigious law firm, a huge multi-million dollar enterprise housed in an extravagant downtown building designed to impress clients. There are attorneys and 
paralegals buzzing around the hallways. There are conferences being held in large conference rooms, high windowed rooms, books, papers, files, all the things that you would imagine in a high class law firm. But then one day, a black Bentley with tinted windows pulls into the parking lot. It pauses just before the senior partner's parking spot. And as it waits there in the parking lot, a tow truck arrives, backs up to a silver Mercedes, and tows it out of the way, and the black Bentley pulls into that spot. The door is opened for a man in an expensive suit. He gets out of the Bentley, having just assumed the most honored parking spot. With a couple, a couple of attendants, yes, surring him as he walks to the building, they get into an elevator, they go to the top floor, and he instructs his entourage to clear out the corner office. They go into the room. Within minutes, attorneys and paralegals are speechlessly watching what's going on. Files are turned over. Framed pictures are taken off of the wall in this corner office. And the new guy from the Bentley assumes the chair of the law firm's director. He acts like he owns the place. Suddenly, there's a shuffle in the hallway. The senior partners are making their way towards this corner office and they're angry. Employees make way in the hallway as they march towards the office. The leading one, whose silver Mercedes had been towed away, walks into the office, goes right up to the man in the expensive suit, sitting in his chair, and he says, Who do you think you are? Now here in our text, the story's not exactly like that but it's pretty close. If you've been tracking with the Gospel of Luke, you realize from last week, chapter 19, there was this thing called the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem as though he owns the place. I mean, track the story with me in the Gospel. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt. It's like a messianic Bentley. Luke chapter 19, verse 35. The reason this is so significant is because the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, many years before, had looked at Jerusalem and said this, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a colt. The prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before, had said, your king is going to come to you, Jerusalem, and he's going to be riding on a colt. A cult. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt, this is pretty important. Not only that, but people are honoring him as he comes in. Do you remember what took place as Jesus rides into Jerusalem? What were the people doing? 
They're taking off their cloaks. Do you remember this? They're taking off their cloaks from chapter 19. They're laying them down in front of Jesus and he's riding over their cloaks. Or, or over their cloaks. Now, this may not mean anything to you, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament, specifically in the book of 2 Kings, in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is pronounced king. And listen to what it says in 2 Kings 9, 13. Every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So Zechariah said, Jerusalem, your king is going to come on a colt. And here comes Jesus on a colt. In the Old Testament, there was this pattern of honoring kings by taking your cloaks off and putting them on the ground in front of them. And that's precisely what people were doing as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He has this entourage buzzing about him as he enters in. And they're beginning to quote from Psalm 118. What is it that the people are saying? And you picked this up from last week in Luke chapter 19. What were the people saying? They're quoting the psalmist. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're saying here. Jesus marches right in to this extravagant downtown temple and he begins to clear things out. It's almost like he owns the place. Luke chapter 19, verse 46, he drives out people who are selling things in the temple and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Well, the religious elite, the prestigious partners of Judaism are mad. They march down the temple hall towards Jesus and they say this. Look at Luke chapter 20, our text today. Look at Luke chapter 20, verse two. This is what they say. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? In other words, who do you think you are? That's what they want to know. That's the first question we should consider from our text this morning. Who is Jesus? What gives him the right to overturn our lives? Who does he think he is commanding us to do this or do that? Have you ever had that question? Have you ever come to a service like this and you leave frustrated like, who does he think he is telling me that? Have you ever read your Bible in the morning and come across the text that just frustrated you? Have you ever been given a truth from God's word that irked you? And you said to yourself, what gives him the right? Who made him the authority here? Have you ever asked questions like, who is this Jesus who presumes to tell me what to do with my money? He acts like he has the right to define our sexuality. Who does he think he is? He's going to march into the corner office of my heart and sit in the director's chair and tell me what to do with my life? Do you see these, friends, these are real questions. These are things it's not just people of old struggled with. These are things that we struggle with. Who does he think he is? Well, Jesus, catch this in the text, Jesus won't answer the question directly. Instead, he flips it and he asks them a question. Did you catch that in verse number four? 
Look at verse number four. He won't answer the question. They say, who do you think you are? What gave you this authority? He says, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Tell me. Verse four, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, at first glance, this might seem like an evasive tactic, like throw out some flares, get the missiles off track, change the subject quick. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing here. You see, referring back to John the Baptist was actually intentional. Why? Well, because John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. You can see that in passages like Luke 1.17 or Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. He was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist, remember, he was the one who introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember, it was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus and something amazing happened in that moment. Do you remember what happens at the baptism of Jesus? Okay, the Spirit descends like a dove, visibly. The heavens open up, and the voice of the Father says this, Luke chapter 3, verse 22. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So remember the question, who do you think you are? And he looks at them and says, well, tell me about John's baptism. Why? Well, because when Jesus was baptized by John, he was publicly declared by God the Father to be the beloved son. Very significant. If John was God's man, then those who were truly godly would listen to him. They would listen to him affirm Jesus' authority. The scribes, the priests, the elders, you can almost imagine as Jesus turns this question back on them, they say, just a second, we need to huddle in. And they begin to whisper back and forth among themselves. If, if we say that the baptism of John was from heaven, Jesus is going to ask us, well, then why didn't you believe in John? But if we say that John's baptism is from earth or has no divine authority, is mere human, then the people are going to kill us because they think John is a true prophet. Oh, how the turntables. They don't know what to do. So what do they say? They say, well, we're not sure. We don't know, verse 7. My friends, listen, and you can write this in the margin of your Bible if you'd like. Here's the truth. It comes from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. My friends, that's exactly what's going on in our text this morning. John was a man sent from God. His baptism was from heaven. He was bearing witness of the true light of the world, 
but these religious leaders didn't want the light. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see that at the end of the chapter where he condemns them. Their deeds are evil. They don't want the light, so they reject the word of John and subsequently reject the living word of God. And I think this teaches us an important lesson this morning. My friends, as God reveals his word to us, we must receive it as it comes. As God reveals his word to us, we need to receive it as it comes. You can't reject this part over here and then think, but when I get to a different part over there, I'll receive that. No, you won't. The fact is, if you pick and choose which parts of God's word are authoritative, you are betraying the fact that you think you're authoritative. You're standing in judgment of God's revelation instead of bowing in submission to it. So here were these religious leaders, and they wouldn't listen to the word of God through John. And what do we discover? They're not going to listen to the word of God, namely Jesus. And that's how this text is unfolding. These religious leaders are asking, who do you think you are? Well, John had already told them, but they wouldn't listen. While Jesus evaded their trap with this question about John's baptism, I want you to realize he didn't totally ignore their question. Instead, what does he do in our text? Verse number nine, he tells a parable. So he doesn't answer it directly. Instead, he, he looks over here and starts telling a story while all of these guys listen in and know it's about them. What is this this parable that Jesus tells in verses 9 through 18. Well, the story begins by introducing a vineyard. Notice verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, when you think of a vineyard, what is it that comes to mind? Some of you are like Welch's grape juice, fine wine. I don't know. Well, listen, the Jews would not be thinking that. When they thought of vineyard, they thought of their own nation. You see, the vineyard was an Old Testament picture used over and over again. It was, it was, it was frequent imagery for Israel. So as he begins to tell about a vineyard, this would have been like telling a story about a bald eagle or telling a story of, you know, that's our symbol, by the way. <laughs> or a maple leaf and referring to Canada or whatever. He's talking about a vineyard and they would have all known that it's referring to Israel. Psalm 80, verse eight, Isaiah five, one through seven, and there's many other passages that refer to Israel as a vineyard. So Jesus is standing in the temple and he begins to tell this story, this parable about a vineyard. And you have to realize that right there, in that very temple, there was a carved, more than 100-foot grapevine decorating one of the arches in that temple. Herod had this thing carved, and rich and patriotic Jews would embellish this grapevine by adding gold leaves or tendrils, bejeweling these different grapes, or if they were very wealthy, a whole cluster 
of grapes. And so he's standing there in the temple talking about a vineyard which represents Israel. Well, he says there's this owner of this vineyard and he leases it out to these tenants. And here you have to picture an idea of of kind of like sharecropping. You can use my land, you can tend the vineyard, but I get a portion of the harvest. That's kind of how it worked back then. Well, when it came time to pay the owner, he sent a servant to collect. That's in verse number 10. But what do they do? They beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sends a second servant, but they beat him and publicly shame him, verse 11. So the owner sends a third servant. They wound him and they throw him out of the vineyard. So who's the owner of the vineyard? God the Father. Who's the vineyard? Israel. Who are these corrupt tenants? They're the religious leaders. Each time God sends one of his servants, namely a prophet, to his people, they reject the prophet, they beat him, and throw him out. That's the picture here in this parable. These prophets who came time after time, and you can read about them in Luke chapter 11, verses 49 through 51. These prophets that came to Israel time and time again are rejected and scorned and abused. So in verse number 13, take a look at the verse, verse 13. Here's what the owner does. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Now remember, he sent Servant number one, rejected. Servant number two, rejected. Servant number three, rejected. And not just rejected, they're beating them and shaming them and throwing them out. Now at this point, you think that the owner is gonna just rain down fire on these tenants. I mean, do these guys really think that they can treat the owner's servants like this and get away with it? To our surprise, however, instead of displaying wrath, he shows one more demonstration of patience. Instead of sending hellfire, who does he send? His son. Verse number 13. Look at verse 13, and you should be surprised by this. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. In the 1980s, Hussein bin Talal was the king of Jordan. He was informed one night by a security police that there was a group of 75 Jordanian army officers that were gathered together to plot a military mutiny. After pausing for a moment, Hussein said, bring me a small helicopter. When it arrived, he climbed aboard, just him. He had the pilot land him on the flat roof of the barracks where this meeting was taking place, and he he told the pilot, If you hear gunshots, fly away immediately and leave me behind. Unarmed, the king walked down two flights of stairs, entered the room where the plotters were meeting, and calmly said to them, Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you're meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country, install a military dictator. If you do this, The army will break apart. The country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way only one man will die. 
After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels rushed as one right at the king. And they bowed and kissed his hands and feet and pledged loyalty for life. That's a true story. And it ended happily ever after. And maybe that's how the vineyard owner hoped this would turn out. But look at verses 14 and 15. The sun is sent. And when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What is Jesus explaining here? He's explaining that the son of God has come to the vineyard of Israel. And the religious leaders, these rebellious tenants, don't want him. And in fact, they're going to take him outside of the gate and kill him. And then the vineyard's going to be handed over to others who will produce fruit, likely the Gentiles. Now folks, don't miss this point. If you reject God's revelation through his servants, remember he sends servant number one, servant number two, servant number three. If you reject God's revelation through his servants, it's likely that you will reject it when it comes through his son. Now, I want to make this really clear. There are some people who think they can ignore God's servants. The prophets, the apostles. There are people who think, I can ignore them, but when it comes to Jesus, we're buds. No, you're not. You never will be. You can't ignore the inspired word and somehow think you're on good terms with the incarnate word. It doesn't work that way. No scripture, no Jesus. He's the son of God whom the prophets foretold and he must not be rejected. At the close of this section, Jesus uses a little play on words. The Hebrew word for son, remember the son is rejected, the Hebrew word for son is ben, and the word for stone is aben. And so there's a rejected son and a rejected stone. He's, he's referring back to Psalm 118, 22. The very stone that is rejected, however, will become the cornerstone. And according to Daniel 2, it will become a crushing stone. It becomes the very thing that's needed and it becomes the eventual source of judgment. Verses 17 and 18. So who do you think you are? That's the first question that Jesus answers. Here's the second. The second question of this text is, what do you think we should do? You have to realize that Jesus in this opening part of our text, was claiming to be the son of God, the prophesied cornerstone. He's doing it through parables and implications. He's, he's doing it indirectly so his opponents can foam at the mouth, but they can't formally charge him with blasphemy or sedition. So they decide to change their approach. And that's where this second question comes from. What do you think we should do? Look at verse number 20. The scribes and chief priests and spies Verse 20, who pretend to be sincere so that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they ask him, you know, after much flattery. Skip down to verse 22. What do they ask him? Here it is. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What do you think we should do? 
You know, it comes to taxes and Caesar and our relationship to government. What do you think we should do? They ask him. Now, friends, this is a trap. It's like when a woman asks her husband, some of you are chuckling already. <laughs> it's like when a woman asks her husband, do you think I look skinnier in this dress or the one I wore yesterday? Don't answer. If you say, I think you look skinnier in this dress, she'll say, so you think I looked fat yesterday in that other dress? If you say, I think you look skinnier in the dress you wore yesterday, she'll think, great, you think I look fat now. So don't answer. It's a lose-lose situation. If you're going to open your mouth, say, honey, you're a beautiful woman made in the image of God. I am not going to be subject to the vain objectification of women that our culture plunges us into. You have beauty and dignity. You're a daughter of the king. I love you just the way you are. That's the only answer you can give. As a whole, however, you catch this idea of a lose-lose situation. That's what they think they got Jesus into. With this taxation question, they're thinking to themselves, ha we've, we've got him now. And it's because you have to realize that contextually, the idea of taxation was a highly volatile subject matter among the Jews. If Oliver Anthony would have released rich men north of Richmond back then, it would have gone viral too. Because the Roman government had imposed a poll tax that was taking, listen to this, somewhere between 30 and 40% of their income. They hated how the Roman government was taxing them. And they saw this taxation as a symbol of subjugation. Almost as if the Romans were saying, you Jews are under our rule. We own you. Caesar is your God now. It was, listen, it was so bad that when Jesus was a child, historically, there was a man named Judas the Galilean who led a revolt because of this tax. He said, if you pay this tax, you Jews, you are conceding that Caesar is Lord. And so a rebellion rose up amongst the Jews, and the Romans had to come in and crush it. They crushed Judas the Galilean's rebellion, but they didn't squash the ideology because it gave rise to another political movement, namely the Zealots. Have you ever heard of them? The zealots were so opposed to the oppression of the Romans as it was portrayed through this tax that they would have small knives and they would be stabbing Roman soldiers. Do you remember even one of Jesus' disciples? He was called Simon the Zealot. It was the zealot movement that would cause a rebellion leading to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This was, I'm just saying, this, this question right here wasn't like a tax joke. You know, the good tax jokes. What do you call, I can't pass this by. What do you call a stimulus check that arrives on St. Patty's Day? The luck of the IRS. <laughs> it wasn't a tax joke like that. This was a serious matter. And here are these slithering, smooth talkers. And they think they have Jesus trapped. What do you think we should do with this, Jesus? If he answers pay the tax, then the patriotic Jews 
would rebel against him. If he says, don't pay the tax, then he'll incite the Romans. Friends, the wisdom of Jesus far surpassed his opponents. So he asks them, verses 24 and 25, show me a coin. Do you see it there? Look at the text, verse 24. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Look at verse 26. I mean, they, they're marveling at his answer. They're stunned. They're silent. What do you think we should do, Jesus? Jesus says, well, Caesar's image is stamped on the coin, so give him your taxes. But God's image is stamped on you, so give him your life. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is telling us that it is possible to be both a faithful Christian and a responsible citizen. We need to obey civil government unless it commands us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. He's showing us in this short phrase that the authority of human government is not unlimited, but it is legitimate. So give Caesar your coin, but give God your life. My friends, I think sometimes we struggle with this because we look at the nature of human government and we realize it's made up of humans. In other words, it's corrupt and crooked. But friends, take comfort in the fact that God can draw a straight line even with crooked sticks. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And that leads us to our final question this morning in our Q&A with Jesus. And that is, how is this all going to end? Jesus has identified himself as the son of God, the promised cornerstone. If we had time today, I'd unpack verses 41 to 43. You'd see that Jesus identifies himself as the son of David and the Lord of David. He's quoting from Psalm 110. But in this text, he's showing us who he is. And he's telling us what he wants. He wants us to be faithful believers and upstanding citizens. But these answers don't satisfy Jesus' critics. They have one more trap up their sleeve, and so they ask him a question about the end. They want to know what happens after we die. Some of the Sadducees come to Jesus and ask him a question. Notice verses 27 and 28. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now you have to realize some things about the Sadducees. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, they didn't believe in, quote, persistence of the soul, penalties in death's abode, or rewards. You're like, what does that mean? They denied the doctrines of heaven, hell, immortality of the soul, and the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. 
That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) Another one. Theological dad jokes. They're better than just regular dad jokes. So they whip up a hypothetical scenario. The Sadducees whip up a hypothetical scenario based off of Deuteronomy 25.5 and the idea of leverate marriage. Basically, if a man died leaving his wife childless, his brother was supposed to marry the widow so that she could bear children to his name and maintain the family inheritance. The Sadducees post a, a hypothetical scenario in which there's one bride for seven brothers. Every one of them die after marrying her. And so they ask, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Ha ha, a trap. Let's see him wriggle out of this one. Now even these guys are trying to tangle Jesus up. They're trying to ask him a question, how is this all going to end? They're trying to trap him. And we could write this question off and just say, well, it's a made-up scenario. It doesn't exist. Let's just move on. But aren't you curious about this a little bit? Haven't you ever wondered what relationships are like after death? What about widows and widowers who remarry? What about those who have suffered broken marriages? What about single people in heaven? What's it like for them? Especially in a place where some religions teach that without marriage, you'll never be exalted to the highest degree of heaven. What are we supposed to make of that? Well, Jesus gives us some insight. He explains that in some ways, our existence after death will be different from our existence now. And one of those differences is that there will be no marriage in heaven. I'm not sure how people wriggle themselves around this. It's so plain. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What that means is in the scope of eternity, marriage is not the be-all, end-all of human existence. Even in the best of circumstances, earthly marriage is only a temporary institution. It is but a transient shadow pointing to an eternal reality. Marriage here on earth is a picture. It's a symbol. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, it's a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. Let me see if I can explain this with an illustration. We have three of our church members deployed right now. I hope you're praying for them. I hope you're praying for their families. I want you to imagine a wife having this treasured photo of her husband while he's away. She carries it in her purse. She sets it on the pillow beside her when she goes to bed. She clutches it to her chest when she misses him most. I mean, that picture reminds her of her true love. Now, what would it be like if the deployment came to an end 
She's at the flight line on base with all of the other spouses when the unit returned. She's standing there with these military members, uh, families, as they wait for their loved ones to deplane. They're all looking at the plane ramp, waiting for their loved one to come off the plane. But she's kind of turned sideways, not even looking at the plane at all. She has this photo she's staring at. Looking the wrong way, gazing into this photo, grasping at it, hugging it. She's captivated by the picture. So entranced in the photo that she misses the reality. Her husband, deplanes, comes all the way over next to her, but she doesn't even see him. She's just clutching this photo, and he taps her on the shoulder and says, Honey, I'm back. I'm, I'm right here. Now, if she just kept staring at the photo, you'd say, that's ridiculous. Put the picture away and give your man a hug. He's the real husband. He's back. It's not about the picture. It's about the reality. The picture is fine for a time, but the real thing is so much better. My friends, listen, when we get to heaven, the picture of earthly marriage is put away and we give our full attention to what it's been pointing to all along, the reality of Christ and his church. He is the true groom and so we'll look to Jesus. After talking about marriage and the resurrection, Jesus concludes with a few last words about how it's all going to end. You see, for those who entrust themselves fully to God, those who depend on God alone, people of faith like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for people of faith, there's life after death. Jesus refers to the burning bush incident where Moses is there at the burning bush, verses 37 and 38. And he says, now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. What do we see? We see that people of faith go on living. But the text also sadly says that people with facades, they receive condemnation. Verse number 47, they reject the son because they're selfish. They stumble over the stone because it gets in their way. They prefer things of this earth instead of eternal things, verse 46. And in the end, they suffer eternal loss. The fake and the faithless, according to, to Luke chapter 20, will be destroyed, broken, crushed, and condemned. So friends, there's, there's a clarion call from this text, and it's this. We must believe in the Son for in him is eternal life. May the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we conclude today? Folks, as you consider the text today, I just wonder if some of you have been neglecting or disrespecting the servants of God while somehow believing you're on good terms with the Son of God. Maybe you've been resisting something in Scripture, but you think you're okay with Jesus. 
friend, it doesn't work that way. Isn't it time to submit to the inspired word and thereby draw close to the incarnate word, Jesus? He's the son of God. You can trust him. He's the cornerstone. You can build your life around him. Maybe some of you need to do that today. I wonder this morning if some of you have struggled giving to Caesar what's rightfully his. Or maybe you've struggled giving to God what's rightfully his. Maybe you're good at paying taxes to the government, but poor at yielding your life to Christ. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you think you've been following Jesus, but you've been resistant in submitting to governmental authorities. Friend, Jesus wants you to be a faithful Christian and a responsible citizen. You can do both with the Lord's help. Maybe you need to ask him for it today. Finally, I just wonder if there's someone in the room that needs to call out to Jesus and prayerfully entrust themselves to him today. Maybe you've been gripped by the reality of death. Maybe when you think about the end, you want life and not condemnation. Maybe you realize your days are numbered and you need to be prepared to meet your maker. And if that's you this morning, then right there in your seat, admit to God that you're a sinner and ask him to forgive you. Confess your inability to fix yourself and ask him to rescue you. Release your grip on your life and entrust yourself to the rule of Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on him today? Father, we just ask that you would use your word to do a work in our lives, that we would have the obedience of faith and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.